Please note this podcast contains details surrounding a murder, which some people may find disturbing. Previously on The Storyteller, Murder Most Foul, I tracked down fellow journalists who covered the brutal murder of 22-year-old Melanie Sturton in October 1999, who we learned was a generous, kind soul and had no enemies. Once we learned that it was a young woman, we were just absolutely horrified. Until Monday night had been this anonymous home is now this sort of real ghoulish landmark. And as the investigation grew, a shocking revelation. Her bank card was used by a young woman. Money had been taken out the, the account. So that's when it really kicked off and, and they just boom, out the door. I'm Isla Traquair, a storyteller. I was the young journalist who covered this murder, my first of many. And now I'm going to share with you this story, which is still as shocking today as the day it happened. I'm hunting down the people at the heart of this case, most importantly, the killer, to see if I can finally get some answers and discover the truth behind this murder most foul. This is The Storyteller, Murder Most Foul, written, produced and edited by me, Isla Traquair. A week after the body of Melanie Sturton was found behind the door of her home in Aberdeen, face down, throat cut so deeply it was almost severed, and with multiple stab wounds, the media and police had believed for that level of violence the killer was likely to be a man. Profilers consulting crime patterns and statistics backed this up, but a grainy CCTV image of someone using Melanie's bank card on the day she died changed that, and soon the gaze of detectives move towards a surprising suspect. I am Sandy Kelman. I'm a retired Detective Chief Inspector. I was the Senior Investigating Officer during this murder inquiry. We learned that Melanie Sturton's bank card had been used. Initially they actually told us it had been used elsewhere in Scotland, but they realised the bank realised they'd made a mistake and it had actually been used on the Saturday, it was lunchtime or just after lunchtime, uh, in Aberdeen. So we looked at CCTV footage of the bank where the card had been used. And unfortunately, the video image we had was maybe not as good as we liked. Uh, it wasn't as close up or whatever. But we managed to get ones which did show that a female had used the card to get some money out on the Saturday afternoon. My name's Peter Riley, um, and I'd been a police officer for almost 20 years, and about half of that time I'd been a detective. So I was um, part of the investigation team, and as a detective sergeant, um, you're allocated many tasks or actions to, to follow through on in terms of the investigation. Um, one of the actions for, for myself, and uh, I was working with um, Janice Faulkner, DC Faulkner at the time, one of the actions for us was to interview all the people who live within the block, um, to ask them what they saw, where they were, if they heard anything, if they saw anything suspicious, if they could add anything to the investigation, if they had any background to anyone around the, the um, accommodation. The block itself, 188 Great Western Road, was a self-contained building, uh, had a secure front door, 
there were a number of bed set flats within it. Uh, on the ground floor was where Melanie um, had her flat. Underneath it, there was a basement that 1188A, Murray and his um, partner, they'd heard a commotion on a Saturday morning. So that, that gave us a strong indication that the, the um, murder had, had taken place around 8.30, 8.40 on a Saturday morning. Um, and also, forensically, the, the alarm clock, I remember, was the battery had fallen out of it and the alarm clock was on the floor and it said, I think it was 8.40, I can't remember, maybe 8.50, but sometime early in the morning. So, whilst the, the broad parameters continued um, to be from Friday night until um, Monday evening when, when um, Melanie had been found, we were looking more closely at the early Saturday morning of where people were at that time. And then Pamela Gurley was one of the other occupants within the, within the building. We hadn't been able to speak to her immediately. She was known to have family south of Aberdeen and she was known to have friends in the Tilledrone area. And we learned that she was working at a restaurant called RSVP in the Academy. And I think it was just before the weekend, um, around that time that we by arrangement with herself and her boss that we saw at her work. So we met her in a um, in a booth at RSVP and um, she was very pleasant, very plausible, um, quite quiet and reserved, but um, didn't strike me as being nervous or anxious. And, you know, she was a young girl as well, so you could understand if she had been anxious, but she didn't strike me as being anxious or nervous when she was meeting with us. Um, and she accounted for some of her time, but she couldn't really account very much for, for the Saturday, if I remember right. It was a little bit vague. Um, but thereafter, from Saturday afternoon, um, she was very clear on where she was. She'd been with her parents, if I remember right. She'd been in town with them. She'd been a friend on Saturday, Saturday evening. She stayed with her friend in town. And then on Sunday, she would have been, um, she met her family again, and I think she spent a few days with them. And that's why we'd had difficulty tracking her down um, initially trying to, to get a hold of her initially. So she was sitting in her sort of chef's uniform, she's just finished her shift, so you're thinking this is a nice restaurant and she's got a good job? Yeah, absolutely. Her employer was there or thereabouts, but again, he, he um, hadn't given us anything to suggest anything other than that, in that she was a solid, reliable worker. You would have asked her if she'd ever met Melanie, what did she know about her? What, what did she tell you about that, their interactions? Yeah. They had maybe met twice, I think. The first time was in the corridor of the ground floor at 188 Great Western Road in the passing. I think the, um, Pam had said that she'd acknowledged Melanie, but because, of course, they were both about the same age, young girls in the same block, so she acknowledged her. I don't think they had a conversation. And then I think the second time was when she, when, when Pamela um, says that she went to Melanie's and borrowed an iron from her. Pamela Gurley was happy and willing to help police. However, when they started looking more closely, checking CCTV and speaking to her casual boyfriend, Chris Taylor, they discovered she'd failed to withdraw money from a cash machine on Friday night and couldn't pay for their taxi to her home. And early Saturday morning, she'd asked strangers for money for Chris's bus home. She then returned to the building on Great Western Road apparently penniless. And yet, hours later, she treated her parents to lunch and even bought her grandmother a birthday gift. A number of things were beginning to come together. We had Pamela Gurley having no money, then suddenly having money. We had the fact that she knew how to use knives. I think we did find she could change temperament quite quickly. Um, and we had the fact that it appeared that she'd possibly used uh, 
Melanie Sturton's bank card on the Saturday afternoon. Pamela's parents had given a description of what she was wearing that coincided with the person using the, the ATM in George Street at the time where there's a £10 transaction from Melanie's account. I think further to that, we also were aware that um, Pamela had gone to Marks and Spencer's, I think, and bought a present with vouchers, which we were aware had been stolen from Melanie's flat also. So not only did Pamela have the opportunity and the motive and the time, but we then had her, in our view, using the ATM and also spending vouchers. And to that end, she she was invited to attend voluntarily at Queen Street, which she did. Um, and simultaneous to that, there was a warrant um, being um, applied for to search her property in Great Western Road. It was at that time when she was being processed through the, the booking in process that she made a comment to the two um, uniform officers, or one of the uniform officers that was with her at that time, saying words to the effect of, what if you've done the worst thing in the world? Forensic scientist Chris Gannicliffe was leading the team tasked with searching Pamela Gurley's bedsit. He showed me the photographs from that day and what they found inside. Melanie's holdall was shoved beneath a small sofa, and in a cupboard, two black bin liners with sinister contents. Things were starting to quickly unfold in terms of interviewing, uh, because I think the interview process, the warrant was executed at the same time as then she was taken into custody. So that's information is feeding back in in live time. And then we approach it in the same way as we had done with Melanie, as uh, flat as we would do with any crime scene. So initially a photographer going in, taking all the photographs uh, uh, of the flat and then coming back out and, and viewing the, the images. Right, so heading upstairs now. Okay, so we've got a fairly heavy patterned carpet mm. heading up the stairs yeah. and wallpaper. And then when you get upstairs, then you've got a kitchen area, I think, there. Um, and then this is her flat. So you can just see there's a two-seater settee just to the side of, uh, of the bed. And just visible under there is an Adidas holdall, which, when you take it out, there's a couple of jars of loose change. Mm-hmm. Uh, bag, CD player, I think that is. CD Walkman, yeah. That was the, the first stage in, in that seeing that underneath, peeping out under the, underneath the edge was the first stage of, doesn't this... Isn't that the same as the description of the back of the missing bag? It was that sort of moment. It wasn't a sort of, I found the bag. It was, isn't it's not look like the bag. So that was this was a bag that was missing that belonged to Melanie. So should, mm. and this is a this is a pretty small room. So you come in, there's a, a single bed, and then um, I would say there's maybe only a foot and a half between it, and then there's this a T. Then to the right, as you stand in the doorway, there's a TV. There's a lion because uh, you're in the sort of roof space uh, in the window. And that's all there is in the yeah. in the room. So you've got these cupboards, which are so built built-in cupboards. There's like a wardrobe, and then there's a couple of cupboards up above. And that's where the bags are. So within the bin, just uh, waste bin, uh, you can see the further you begin to look within this room, the more you begin to see is it's a Melanie's driving license. So the black bags. At this point, we've taken the black bags. Uh, these are the ones from the cupboard. That's right. So sort of black bin bags. Uh, tied at the neck, so we've lifted them out and put them onto the uh, the floor. 
And you really don't want to be going through them all at this stage, but what you do want to do is just confirm that they have, are of interest. So they're just opened at the, at the top mm. just to see what we've got. Uh, we've got a PVC or polyester jacket, like an anorak. And then within there is a sabatier knife, a boning knife, which you can see is very heavily bloodstained. Pair of purpley pink Dr. Martin style boots. Uh, but it's immediately obvious this is something significant. We can see there's, there's bloodstained items amongst it. And this kind of, she was a chef, so this looks like this is one of her professional... Yeah, it's a decent, a decent knife. So overall, it's about nine and a quarter inches and the blade is about five inches long. And then within the bag is a, a variety of other uh, paperwork, so there's identity cards and the like. So there's an Aberdeen College identity card within there. So a variety of paperwork with Melanie's name and address on. It looks like, kind of almost looks like a black bag of things that you'd throw in as though you were giving it to a charity or something, doesn't it? It's not been organised. No, it's just cleared out yeah. a whole lot of makeup materials and just very mundane, everyday yeah. stuff. It's funny how things stick in their head. You know, that's 20 years ago. And after that is really at the forefront. If you asked for one thing that I remember, it's that. What are the crimes we deal with? They tend to be, you already pretty much know the alleged circumstances, you know the alleged protagonists, it's pretty clear who's thought to be involved, it's a question of what happens and whether it was self-defence or not. It, the whodunit element isn't necessarily the case. And where you do have a whodunit, it's not necessary, but the forensics would provide the answer. It does occasionally, but often it's supporting. The police inquiry identifies somebody of interest. You might have their DNA and then you test mm. it and find it matches and such like. Occasionally, you, you do have these ones you crack, but it's not that common. It's very rare to be involved with something where you have that, you're there at that moment. And so I can, I can very vividly remember the photographer coming out and being almost in a sen with a sense of shock. Because with hindsight, it's easy to think, well, she's a suspect and so you found evidence. But that isn't or wasn't how we were approaching it on a day. It was very much, this might be a person of interest, I don't know. Uh, so. If you can examine that flat, see if there's anything there. It was, it was, it was more like that. And it was very much just one of these moments of just, oh, this is it, isn't it? And it was, it was a really a dawning of a realization that all the time we'd been in that downstairs flat for that last week, all the answers had been a few feet away upstairs. Yet, we were not to know, but all the answers had been just there. Uh, so it's a real dawning moment of really took you, took you aback. At exactly the same time as the bloodied clothes, knife and stolen belongings were found in Pamela's flat, detectives were seeing a very different side to her compared to when she was assisting them as a helpful neighbour. Peter Riley, who was a detective sergeant at the time, took me through the transcript of his interview with her, which can only be described as chilling. Her demeanour changed significantly. It was, very, it was very surreal because she had dropped her boyfriend off, she'd come back to the flat. She told us that she went back up to her own room um, for around about half an hour or so and that she changed into dark clothing. I don't remember telling us before then what she was going to do, but she changed into dark clothing, put a hat on, put surgical gloves on. If I remember right, I think surgical gloves came from some stolen property that she'd received from somewhere else in a previous time. It's not like she'd maybe bought these herself, so she told us. Uh, and then she went downstairs 
Um, and even at that time, you know, she, she had a knife with her. She didn't say that she was going down intending to kill Melanie, but at the same time she went downstairs, she took the trouble to get herself into this attire with a knife. So I think that the obvious conclusion was her intention was to, to kill her. Um, we, I asked her what she did next and she said that she had um, knocked at the door and then when it had been answered, she, pu she pushed her way in and struggled. Um, and then she said that she killed her, meaning that she had killed um, Melanie. I, I asked her what she'd killed her with and she said it was with a knife, with one of her knives, um, a Sabati knife, if I remember right, which was, she, she was a chef and she had her own um, roll of knives, if I, if I remember right, Sabati knives, and um, she'd taken one of these down and, and um, murdered Melanie with this knife. And I then, I asked her what she did with the, the knife and she she said um, she'd slit her throat. I asked her how often she'd used it and um, she said two or three times that she'd um, used the knife. I then asked her to, to demonstrate what she meant um, and what parts of the body that um, Melanie had been injured with and she said she couldn't um, demonstrate that. I asked her what happened um, when she'd struggled with um, with Melanie and she said she struggled and I'd asked if she'd used the knife then and she said yes. And she said yes, she thinks so. I'd also asked her where she'd used the knife and she said that she'd, she'd struck her in the throat and that um, I'd asked what, what Melanie had done and she said, and Pamela said that Melanie had screamed or she screamed. Um, so clearly from, from that we were, um, you know, she, she'd made an admission to us, she went on to tell us that she had then um, taken property from Melanie's flat. Um, I asked her if she had thought that anyone would have heard her. Um, this was, as I recall, just, she said about half an hour after she came back, so I think this would have been about 8.30, 8.40 or so, which coincided as I recall, with um, the account from the, the residents in the basement as well. Um, and she said, yeah, she thought people would have heard the, the noises from the room. I then asked her uh, what she'd done with, the, with the, the clothing and the knife, and she said that she'd actually put them, left them in her flat in, uh, upstairs in Great Western Road. And she'd also left, left the, the property that she'd stolen in the flat as well. I... Um, during the interview, I asked her if, if, if um, Melanie had spoken to her at all, and um, Gurley said yes, she, she, Melanie had told her to stop. And I'd asked her if she did stop, and she said she couldn't remember. It was chilling just hearing you recall that and refer to parts of the transcript. What was it like for you to actually be there at that stage in your career and as a human being to sit and listen to that? Yeah, it's quite incredible. and, and um, one one of the challenges for police officers always when doing an investigation is to ensure that you're objective. Um, you don't become emotionally involved in an investigation. Undoubtedly, you can relate to a lot of the circumstances surrounding it and have a whole um, feeling of empathy for for the family. Um, and to be fair to both families, you know, subsequently in terms of 
Melanie and Pamela's families. I think it's important that the suspect doesn't feel that we're judging them because it's not certainly not our role to do that. Um, and to a certain extent, almost normalise what she's telling us because we want to, to get the best evidence from her. Um, so on the surface, I think it would have been, appeared maybe quite calm, but underneath it, clearly, you think this is just a tragedy that's occurred. Um, and it's quite incredible that a young lady such as um, Pamela Gurley um, was, had committed such a horrific crime. The adrenaline must have been pumping. Yep, um, underneath it was, and, and we, we terminated the interview at a particular point to allow us to, to gather our thoughts as well, and, and, and also to understand what had happened back in the flat, and I think it was a welcome break for, for us all. Clearly, still at that stage, we had many questions to ask Pamela, um, and it was important for us that she's looked after with her duty of care for her, um, so she, she's left to, to gather her thoughts as well and allow us to sort of gather our thoughts. During the break, the forensic team informed them of the incriminating evidence they'd found. The interview team then headed back in to ask Pamela more questions. In this next excerpt, I read out Pamela's responses from the transcript. This is a bit where there were two police officers who came to the property literally within an hour or so of the murder being committed. Um, so they were doing a warrant inquiry, weren't they? They were looking for a wanted person that was in the block. From the front door, Melanie's body was just metres behind behind another closed door, but nearby. And this is um, you guys questioning her about her interaction with these two police yeah. officers. So here we go. Um, you know you were met by the police officers in the stairs. What had you done after you left Melanie's flat and before you met the police officers? I was in my flat. And what did you think the police were there for? I don't know. Did you think anyone had heard Melanie scream? And you're nodding your head. Yeah. And uh, what did you do with the knife and clothing that you were in during the attack? Now, this is paraphrased, but she said they were in a top cupboard with a knife in her flat and that the items she'd stolen were also in the cupboard. And um, had Melanie died while you were there? Pamela says that she didn't know. Was she talking to you? She told me to stop. And did you? I can't remember. OK, once you were inside... Um, the flat, Melanie's flat, what's she done? We fought. Why? Because I had a knife. And did she see the knife? Uh-huh. And what did she say about that? She screamed. And then um, Pamela later admits going into Melanie's bedroom, um, which was in a separate room, and she used a key which had been left on the exterior of one of the doors. You mentioned to me earlier on that you slit her throat when you're standing um, facing her or beside her? Behind her. Did she speak after that? No. And what way was she facing? Face down. And did she speak after that? No. What did she do? She fell to the ground. Whereabouts? By the front door. And which way was she facing? Face down. And then Pamela then explains that she put a... The, covered the body in a blanket which was uh, lying next to Melanie on the floor. She admitted she was wearing surgical gloves at the time and um, asked why she'd put on the gloves. She said she didn't know. Your colleague asked her, you went straight up to your room, OK, so what happened from when you went into your room and changed the clothes you had on? I don't know what was going through my head. And um, DC Faulkner asked her what she was thinking about. 
I don't know. And again, DC Faulkner said, when you went to the door, what was your intention? What did you intend to do? I don't know. I didn't mean to hurt her. Pamela said she'd only been in Melanie's flat once before when she borrowed an iron and hadn't spoken to her recently. When I asked what she thought of Melanie, she said she was nice. It's quite chilling, isn't it? Well, it was chilling, and yet, apart from the tears, there was no real remorse, as I recall. Um, I don't remember her saying that she was sorry she did it. I don't remember her saying that she did it to steal the property. I'm, I'm, to this day, I'm not sure whether she did the murder because she wanted to commit murder and the, the theft of the property was a consequence, you know, an afterthought or what. And, and sadly for, for Melanie's family, I mean, I suspect we'll never know that. In the next episode of The Storyteller, Murder Most Foul, we hear from Pamela's former best friend, who was unwittingly dragged into a murder inquiry. She's never spoken publicly before, and what she reveals is truly unsettling. The Storyteller, Murder Most Foul is written, produced and edited by me, Isla Traquere. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes or Acast. And there's more information about the case on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram.